The following is audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you would like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org. So, today the topic is Sin Does Not Fit Into Your Life. The text is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 7. Sin ought to be like a square peg in the round hole of your life. That really is a good summary of what Paul has to tell us. Now I want to review where we've been. This is a very important passage in chapter 4, 22 to 24, where Paul had said, you were taught, and he was there for two years, with regard to your former way of life, the way you lived before you knew Christ, to put off your old self, put it off, which is being corrupted by its evil desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, when we study that passage, I told you, and you well remember it, that the putting off and the putting on are in the past tense. This happened the moment you trusted Christ. You took off the old self, the old way of living, and you threw it aside like dirty clothes, And you put on the new self, made in the image of God, and as he says, to to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Those are past acts. They happen the moment you believe. And so how do you sustain that new self-life? By renewal, by revival. That's what he says, which is in the present tense, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. You're reprogramming your mind. You're reprogramming your life. And this is real revival. This is living in revival. And it's possible to do this constantly. It really is because we have all that we need to do it. And so we spent, we've talked about Evan Roberts, that great Welsh revivalist who the message he gave to his local church and then spread all over the world, confess any known sin to God and put away any wrong done to others. Put away any doubtful habit, obey the Holy Spirit promptly and confess Christ openly. These were the words, this was the strategy that changed the Welsh land, Wales, and then spread everywhere else. As an example, there were so few court cases, judges resigned. They had nothing to do. Police forces formed quartets to sing at the churches because there was so little crime. The animals in the mines of Wales had to be retrained because the workers didn't cuss at them anymore. That's revival. That's what happened in the early 20th century. We recently, (coughs) excuse me, just last week, looked at these verses. Follow God's example. Mimic God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is a standard we can't reach. I mean, it's beyond us, yet we continue to strive for it, and we do make progress in being like God and being like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, I also introduced to you the results of a recent survey by George Barna, who's been doing surveys since the early 90s of Americans. He phoned 2,000 different Americans and interviewed them. 
and that's a cross-section of the nation. And he discovered, sadly, that after the pandemic, the percentage of Americans that hold to a biblical worldview, I mean, they really believe it and they practice it, dropped from 6% to now post-COVID, 4% of Americans. And this is a trend that that alarms us, but it means we're ripe for revival, okay? We're ripe for it now because the other philosophies and worldviews cannot compete with the truth and the glorious gospel and believing the Lord and what he has said, as Ed was just reminding us of. And so Barna, in his research, concluded young people in particular are largely isolated from biblical thought in our society and are the most aggressive in rejecting biblical principles in our culture. Facilitating a return to biblical thinking and living in America will take an intentional, strategic, and consistent effort by the remaining population that represents this biblical approach to life. Barna remained hopeful, saying he has seen some evidence indicating that more people are waking up to the concept the importance and the process of biblical worldview development. Perhaps the ugliness and heavy-handedness of cancel culture has stimulated greater interest in the potential benefits of adopting a worldview based on love and service in shaping both our culture and our individual lives. And I say amen to that. And let us pray for that. Let us pray that God will do a new work in our generation. So I must ask, based on the text for today, what is your attitude towards sin? What is your attitude toward your sin? Wow. That's that's a tough question. We are God's holy people. That's what the text tells us. God's holy people. We have been set apart by him to be separate from sin and to draw near to him. And that's how you separate yourself from sin. Draw near to God and you'll draw away from sin. And that's the key. Holy people. Now sanctify, the verb to sanctify or made holy, separated from sin unto God, is found in all tenses in the New Testament. It is used in the past tense. We are called saints. The Corinthian church was called saints. We had an ordination council this week for a young man who was just, we we passed him, and it was a great blessing to be with this young man. He's the pastor over at Bethany Evangelical Free Church over in Littleton. And in the course of the interview, we're not supposed to instruct, but I'm 65 years old, all right? So I can't help myself. And I gave several instructions and then apologized. Are you a saint? I asked him. And he said, yes, based on what the Scripture says. We have been made saints. All right. In the future, we're going to be glorified. We're going to get rid of the sin nature. We're going to get rid of this mortal body. We're going to put on a glorified, resurrected human body that will last forever, that has no sin. We'll be totally sanctified. But we live in the present. So the term is also used in the present tense. 
And we are called to be holy as our Father is holy. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance before you knew Christ. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. This holiness is difficult. It's a battleground in our lives. It's tough. But it's worth the good fight. It's worth it. Be holy as I'm holy. None of us are sinless apart from Christ. In Christ we're sinless, but in our lives. But we want to sin less and less and less, right? That's our desire. At least it should be. I like the words of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was a baseball player. Early 20th century Pretty good baseball player, but he also had an alcohol problem. When he came to Christ in a mission in Chicago, he later became a preacher and a great evangelist. He was a character. I don't know if you've ever seen film of Billy Sunday. He used to, he used to say, I'm going to slide into heaven. He'd run across the stage and slide across the stage. And, and he was a, really, the great revivals were, what came in the early 20th century as a result of his ministry, Billy Sunday. Listen, I'm against sin, he said. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I've butted as long as I've got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old, fistless, footless, and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory and it goes home to perdition. I just love that. I wish I had written that. Let us... Fight the good fight. Personally. Let revival come to our lives. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is a challenging text. I try to imagine in my mind what it was like as the Apostle Paul thought of these dear loved ones in Ephesus that he's writing to. And he wrote these words. But the relevance of this scripture is just as real today in the 21st century as it was in the 1st century. And we just ask that the Holy Spirit would come in this room right now. We know he's present. And may he give us ears to hear and hearts that desire to 
to obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians 5, 3-7, Paul gives three warnings about sin to God's holy people. Sin is a real threat. Sin has dire consequences. Sin should be avoided at all cost. Sin is a real threat. He says in the text, not even a hint of these things should be present among God's holy people. Not even a hint. Literally, it says, should not even be named among you. Okay, so he is calling us to holiness. And let us remember what it was like in Ephesus in the first century, okay? Imagine... You're in the, in the city, and there's various options for all kinds of immorality and immoral behavior and dishonesty and everything else. And you have the option, for instance, to go to the temple of Artemis, and there's a picture of the goddess Artemis. She has many breasts because she was the goddess of the hunt and of fertility. And there, there are orgies going on all the time. And you can just go there, and as a religious act, you can commit all kinds of immorality. And then you hear the gospel and you trust Christ. And then you hear words like this from the Apostle Paul. So let us not imagine that just because we have the internet access to sin, that we are unlike this first century church. They had all the same challenges. I recently read something that really helped me personally with temptation. Jesus, when he was tempted, said, not my will, but thine be done. That helps us. Not even a hint. Indeed, sexual immorality, pornea, is the Greek word. We do get our word pornography from that word. And it is found 25 times in the New Testament. And it means things like incest and promiscuity and prostitution. The lexicon definition of pornea is that any sexual activity outside of the covenant of a marriage between a husband and a wife is pornea. Again, that's not a popular definition. But that is what the word means. And that's what Paul was writing in the first century. And it's a stand that I feel compelled. And I asked for prayer this week at prayer meeting. And I said, I've got to talk about this. I'm not comfortable to talk about this. It grieves me when I think of the sorrow and the pain that this can bring and is bringing in so many lives. Now, there is forgiveness. And we're going to talk about that. Absolutely there is but it may be better to not sin. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. <coughs> Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. When I was a young single man many, many moons ago, the image of my body now in Christ being a holy temple for the Holy Spirit helped me. As a 65-year-old man, it still helps me. May God help us. 
to understand what Scripture says. My professor for New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, where I went to school, Dr. Grant Osborne, said it this way, teaching of the church is clear and final. Sexual sin can have no place in the life of a Christian. He also mentions impurity, and impurity would involve sexual sins, but other sins as well. There's the ceremonial idea of being unclean in Matthew, and in this word impurity is used of the acts of the flesh. <coughs> Excuse me, in Galatians. David said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Any sin we sin is, first of all, sin against God. All sin is lawlessness, John writes. Every kind of sin, including this kind of sin. So we sin in our deeds. We also sin in our thoughts. Greed. Covetousness is the King James Version. The desire to possess for yourself what belongs to another. And he mentions that a couple times in the text. Greed as a thought sin. And then in words, and there's a triad here of words that only appear right here in the New Testament. They never appear anywhere else, just in this text. Obscenity, ugly or wicked speech. I notice that Drivers in Colorado don't realize they have turn signals on their car. It's like it's a new invention that has an accessory that's never been used before. And when they don't use it, thank you, thank you for your empathy. But it should not be. Obscenity should not be wicked or decayed speech, foolish talk, the language of a moron. (laughs) And a moron in the biblical definition is not someone who lacks intelligence, it's someone who lacks a relationship with God and is in rebellion against God. Foolish talk. And finally, coarse joking, which is and includes sexual innuendos and other kinds of coarse language. Again, Osborne writes, language that accomplishes nothing of any real value. It's true. So we sin in our deeds, in our thoughts, and in our words. But this should not be so. Rather, we should be filling our language with thanksgiving. Developing an attitude of gratitude is a great remedy for such things. And the reason that sin's such a real threat, it's improper for God's holy people, and it's out of place. It's just out of place. Now, because we are sinners by nature, we sin in our deeds. We sin in our thoughts and in our words. But as revived people, we understand this is a battle we must wage We desire to be like our God and like our Savior. And there should not even be a hint of these things among us. And when we sin, we confess quickly. We ask God for forgiveness, and what does he do? He forgives. We've got to hold on to that. We've got to hold on to that. Every sin, all sin, can and will be forgiven by our Savior. And when Jesus says, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. Absolutely but it would be better 
that we had not sinned. Sin has dire consequences. Who is he talking about? For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. That sounds very familiar. That's what he just said. He repeats those words. Such a person is an idolater. All of these are are signs of idolatry in a life. Idolatry. Worshiping someone other than God. You can be sure of this. You can know this, not only just as a fact, but by experience. You've seen it. The way of a sinner is hard, the Proverbs says. It's hard. And there are consequences. Idolatry. Narcissism is so rampant. You remember. We use the term so much now. It's a mythology character who looked into the pool of water and fell in love with himself. So many people have done that. Justify their sin and blame everybody else. It's just such a sad thing. It's just such a sad trend in society. Again, Osborne talks about this. When we are greedy, we have another God in our life, wealth or possessions. Today, all too many of us have a God shelf in our homes containing our checkbook or credit cards along with a list of accumulations. Millions of Americans worship idols of wealth and possessions at temples dedicated to that purpose, whether at physical locations like a shopping mall or at the digital temples of the internet shopping. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters, both God and money. Though many of us try to do exactly that. It's serious. What are the consequences The judgment comes. A person like this doesn't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The kingdom of Christ, again, can't give all the detail, is kind of the present blessings. When Jesus is your Lord and your master and you're serving him, there's blessings, inheritance that comes into your life. And then the kingdom of God is the future. What's going to happen in the future? Inheritance. But he says, listen, if this is the habitual way you live, you have no inheritance. That's a strong term, isn't it? That's a, that's a stark word. When Jesus told the parable of the great banquet in Matthew 22, he's the one that does the inviting. But many turned him down. And then you remember the one fellow showed up in the wrong clothing, and Jesus said, you're out of here, buddy. You've you got to be in the righteousness of me, right? God does forgive. He gives inheritance. We've already seen that in this great letter. But it's to those who believe, not those who choose to rebel. And he says God's wrath comes. God's wrath will come. Because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. His steady burning against sin. Because the sons of disobedience is the Hebraic thing. They're not persuaded. They're not persuaded of the truth. Do do you remember when Paul was in court and he's trying to persuade the king? And, and, and the king says, did you think you would so easily persuade me to be a Christian? And what did Paul say? I wish you were. 
like me in every way except for the chains. You see? They weren't persuaded. I want to tell you something shocking. Paul never mentions hell in his letters. Never mentions it. The word hell appears 14 times in the New Testament. Twelve of the 14 times that word appears is from the lips of Jesus Christ. It's a serious, serious consequence for a lifestyle lived in rebellion, unpersuaded by God. Sin is serious. There are effects. Yeah, I wanted to remind you of Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> Some of you were alive when Calvin Coolidge was the president. He came after Harding had died, and he was quite a president, known as the, the silent president because he didn't say much. Much of what he said was very succinct. Coolidge was a man of faith. He had only began... It, it, it is only when men begin to worship that they begin to grow, he said. He also said this, Our government rests upon religion. It is from that source that we derive our reverence of truth and justice for equality and liberality and for the rights of mankind. Unless the people believe in these principles, they cannot believe in our government. There are only two main theories of government in, the, in our world. One rests on righteousness and the other on force. One approach appeals to reason, the other appeals to the sword. One is exemplified in the republic, the other is represented by despotism. The government of a country never gets ahead of the religion of its country. There is no way by which we can substitute the authority of law for the virtue of a man. Of course we endeavor to restrain the vicious and furnish a fair degree of security and protection by legislation and police control. But the real reform which society in these days is seeking will come as a result of our religious convictions, or they will not come at all. Peace and justice and humanity and charity, these cannot be legislated into being. They are the result of divine grace. I agree. Calvin Coolidge. I'll tell you another little story about Calvin Coolidge. He was a man of faith. He attended church regularly. One day, his wife was ill, so she couldn't go to church. And so Coolidge went by himself. And so when he came home, she said, uh, so how, how was the service? Good. He made a few words. Good. What did the preacher talk about? Sin. What did he say? He's against it. <laughs> oh, that we would understand the seriousness, the consequences of sin, and avoid it at all costs. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Do not be partners. Do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Do not be deceived. And do not be partners with them. One of my profs 
preached a sermon on sin. And as the people were leaving, the, the woman said to him, Well, Pastor, you know, it's a lot different when a Christian sins. To which he said, Yeah, it's a lot worse. May God help us to win the battle, to fight the fight, to understand the seriousness, and to not be partners. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We are the church. We are the gathered ones under our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us plan to live close to God. Let us encourage one another to live close to God. Let us say no to temptations of all kinds. I was listening recently to a sermon by Alistair Begg. Do you know Alistair Begg? He's Scottish. I just like listening to him because of his brogue. But he lives in Cleveland. And he preaches from Cleveland. He's been there for many years. And he was starting a series on Jude to which the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ grew up with Jesus. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Not a faith, the faith. The faith the apostles told us about as eyewitnesses that the Holy Spirit inspired to be written down and to be protected as a body of truth we need to contend for this. He said it's like a code blue in a hospital. When the code blue sounds, everybody runs to help save the one who has died before they die or bring them back. And we're in an age, and I believe Alistair's right, where the code blue is sounded and we must contend and wrestle for the faith, not just as a creed, but as the conduct of our lives. You see, that's revival. That's, that's what he's talking about to them. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago secretly slipped in among you. They're among you. They're not on the outside. They're among you. And they are ungodly people who pervert, twist the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So there are two extremes that people have with sin. Some people don't believe they can be forgiven. You can be forgiven. Any and all sin, past, present, and future, can and will be forgiven when you trust Christ. But then there's the other side saying, oh, let us sin so grace may abound. A license for immorality, no. Let us stay biblical. Let us stay focused and let us continue to remember Christ forgives sins. John 8, the woman caught in adultery. What a, what a very difficult passage and yet a glorious passage. I often wonder, where was the man in this story? He should have been there too. And when he asked the woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared, declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You have the ability 
to say no. You are forgiven. Please, I want you to know you can be forgiven. It would be better to have not committed sin. But any and all sin can be and will be forgiven. When we trust Christ, even serious sins with dire consequences. So, let us stay connected with Christ. That's what we say we're going to do. Let's stay connected with Christ personally, individually. And let us stay connected to our brothers and sisters in the community of believers. Let us keep encouraging one another to live our lives for the glory of God. And then, equipped by the connecting with Christ and in the community, we go to the culture and show them the grace of God and share with them the good news of the gospel. Oh, amen. Thank you. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for saving us from all our sins. We do not deserve your forgiveness. Our salvation was free to us, but not cheap. And Jesus, thank you for dying in our place. Thank you, Lord, that you often erase many of the consequences in your grace. Lord, we were all sinners. We were all the objects of your just wrath. Even Paul himself says that in chapter 2. And yet, by your grace and your mercy, you forgave us and you seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Let us then live like people who are seated with Christ. Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit right now who is present will just convince each person here of your forgiveness. Your full and free forgiveness. And as those who have been forgiven, let us go forth forgiving others. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Fellowship Community Church in Centennial, Colorado. If you'd like more resources or want to support this ministry, please visit www.fcchurch.org.